So we'll begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided us a king who will provide us with safety and rescue and redemption. We thank you so much for that. We thank you also that this king will bring about the peace and prosperity that has been so long absent upon this earth. Solomon's kingdom was a type of that, but it's a weak type of it. It will be fulfilled in the the reign of Jesus Christ upon this earth. And we thank you for that. We thank you for giving us this knowledge. And we thank you for giving us the history of what leads up to this point. We ask that you would help us to understand these things more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight we have 1 Kings. And of course, Jesus Christ is our king, the king that all of this points to and leads up to. You've seen this a couple of times now where I've explained that originally the in the Septuagint, the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they were all considered one book. And they simply divided up by the letters of the Greek alphabet in modern Hebrew Bibles, they divided up by the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Beit, Shmuel and Malachim. All right. Flight, the facts. The author of 1 Kings is unknown. Tradition suggests the prophet Jeremiah, but this can't be proven. Many scholars believe it was written between 562 and 536 B.C. It doesn't mention the return of Israel after the captivity, so that's why they say it must have been written sometime before 536 B.C. One thing that's for sure is that one person didn't live through this entire period of time, First and Second Kings, because that's in the neighborhood of 400 years. So you know, it was compiled, the information was compiled afterwards, after the fact. First Kings, like several other historical books of the Bible, shows the failure of Israel's leadership to obey God. An increase in national prosperity was undermined by a decrease in national spirituality. While Israel grew physically and militarily, they grew weak spiritually through idolatry and rebellion against God. Uh, The subject of the book, the the first 11 chapters, are are still about the united kingdom when, when the kingdom was united under David and then under Solomon. And then the latter chapters, chapters 12 through 22, are about the divided kingdom when we have two kingdoms, one in the north, Israel, and one in the south, Judah. That's the uh, itinerary. The gospel, Solomon was a son of David who brought a level of glory previously unknown to the nation of Israel. However, Jesus, the greater son of David, would far outshine Solomon in both wisdom and glory. His name as one greater than Solomon He came as one greater than Solomon. That greatness would be demonstrated by his sacrificial atonement on the cross and will be demonstrated to this world in his earthly millennial reign. History, the the dates of 1 Kings range from the death of David in 970 B.C. to the reign of 
in Isaiah of Judah, 841 B.C. The book chronicles a history of amazing heights and of wealth and prestige under Solomon and the weakness, poor leadership, and division that followed his reign. That's the history, the, the travel tips. Despite his wisdom and generosity, Solomon broke God's commands for kings laid out in Deuteronomy. It talked about not multiplying horses, wives, gold. Solomon did all of those things. Horses, of course, being the, the uh, symbol of military might in the ancient world. He overtaxed his people and spent the funds lavishly and primarily on himself. What got lost in all those projects and weddings was his time spent in God's word. According to Deuteronomy, the king was to copy out in his own writing, a copy of the Torah. So he was supposed to study the Torah. And Solomon couldn't have been doing that if he was doing all of these other things that he's attributed to. I also wanted to add one more about the travel tips. This is regarding Elijah. Even great men and women of God hit low points in life. Elijah should have enjoyed the victory God gave him over the prophets of Baal. Instead, he became discouraged. God is there when you can't see past your pain or circumstances, and especially when you are in your darkest hour. This is the um, kingdom of, of David and Solomon. So you can see that And under David, it was all of this purple and green area. Under Saul, it was smaller yet, but under David, it became all of this green area. And then Solomon extended it even further to the north, up into Syria. Here's another map of that. So Solomon's kingdom at the beginning of his reign was this all of this area, but he extended it clear up here into, into Syria. The borders of Israel have never reached this point before Solomon or after Solomon. This was the greatest extent historically of, of the empire of Israel. And under Solomon... The, the borders of Israel were clear up here to the Euphrates River, up to the northeast, clear down to the to the river of Egypt, the what we call the Wadi El Arish today. And that that will be the borders of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. So once again, Solomon's kingdom was a type of that Millennial Kingdom. Here's another map of, of the kingdom that Solomon had. Now you notice that these nations here, like, like Moab, Ammon and Moab and Edom further to the south, and Philistia, all of those were brought under control under David and, and Solomon. So Solomon's kingdom was able to enjoy a time of peace and prosperity. 
And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even unto Beersheba, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. And the prophets use those very same words to describe the conditions that will prevail during the Monial kingdom. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So what we saw a type of in Solomon's kingdom, we will see it brought to fruition in the millennial kingdom. Solomon divided his kingdom into administrative districts. He didn't divide his his own tribe of Judah into administrative districts, but he divided all of the northern tribes into administrative districts, into 12 administrative districts. And here's another another map of those administrative districts. And there are a couple there are things that I want to call to your attention about those districts. Because Solomon was sowing the seeds, even early in his reign, he was sowing seeds that would later bring about his destruction. He wouldn't experience this destruction in his lifetime. But his descendants would, because he was building up resentment among the northern tribes towards uh, the, the dynasty of David and Solomon and, and against Judah. The purpose of this reorganization is to charge each district with the responsibility of maintaining the royal household and the cost of government for one month of the year. So there were 12 districts, and each of those 12 districts would provide the the food and so on, the the money to run the government for one month out of the year. And they would take turns. So a a great burden was was placed upon the people of the northern tribes because Solomon didn't require his tribe, Judah, to, to do this. Also, with just a few exceptions, these new administrative districts do not correspond to the tribal inheritances. In other words, the, the tribal allotments that were given at the time of, of Joshua. These, uh, these new districts that, that Solomon set up didn't correspond to the, to the tribal allotments. He uh, based his districts around the major cities. Such realignment casts off tradition and ends time-honored loyalties. So the, the tribal elders wouldn't have been very happy about this. Also, most of the district appointees, even though they preside over northern Israelite territories, have a patently pro-Judahite character. So the people that he appointed to be the heads of these districts were relatives of Solomon or of his cronies. It appears that in Solomon's new administrative system, power is passing from the tribal elders to the regional governors all of whom are appointed by the royal regime in Jerusalem. So, for example, um, two of the appointees were Solomon's sons-in-law. One of them was the son of Hushai, David's counselor. One one of them was the son of the priest Zadok, who had helped 
David when um, Solomon or excuse me Absalom rebelled. And another one was the brother of Jehoshaphat, Saul's court recorder. So in other words, his his relatives, his close friends, these are the people that he appointed to be the the administrators of these districts. God made some amazing promises to Solomon, but he also laid out very clearly the warnings of what would happen if you did or didn't follow God. If you followed God, there would be blessings. If you didn't follow God, there would be curses. So he gave five warning ifs to Solomon. God did. If your heirs will take heed to their way to walk before me in faithfulness, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes, if you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, if you walk before me, if you turn aside from following me, then some very bad things will happen. So Solomon and his descendants couldn't say that God didn't warn them. He explained to them very clearly what the repercussions would be of following God or not following God. One of the interesting things that happened between God and Solomon was that God sort of gave a blank check to Solomon. He said, ask what I should give you. And he's the only person in the Bible to whom God makes that kind of an offer. Just tell me what I should give you and I'll I'll give it to you. Now, Solomon chose wisely in that he asked for wisdom rather than rather than riches or military power or length of life. This is a map of Jerusalem. Remember with with David, when he originally took over the Jebusite city and made it his capital, Jerusalem, there was only this, uh, this little finger of land right here. Solomon expanded it to the north. So the, the original city of Jerusalem was only about 12 acres or so, but, but Solomon more than doubled it in size when he expanded it to the north. And of course, the very important thing, it was, it was a very defensible location, and it also had a good water source here in the Gihon Spring. There's another map of that. There is some dispute about whether... Uh, the palace that Solomon built was located here, south of the temple, or whether it was located north of the temple. There are some who go for either option. I think it's generally thought that, that his palace was was south of the temple. Um, I don't know. I, I would kind of prefer that my palace would be north of the temple because I just, just from the simple aspect of I wouldn't, would, wouldn't want the whole congregation traipsing through my front yard every week. <laughs> Which you could avoid if your palace was north of the temple. When people were coming up through the, the old uh, the, the city, the lower city, they'd have to come past your temple, your, your home, your palace. Maybe Solomon looked at it differently. I don't know. So this is a diagram of the temple and of Solomon's palace, assuming that his palace was located 
south of, of the temple. Now, you can see that his palace complex was much larger than the temple complex. It took seven years to build the temple. It took 13 years to build his palace complex. So that is one thing that commentators sometimes uh, point out about Solomon, that, that he spent a lot more time building his own house than he did building God's house. And, of course, it's fascinating to look at diagrams of the temple. This is a, a cutaway one, of course, showing the insides of the temple. This molten sea is the, the equivalent of, in the tabernacle, you had the laver that contained water for, to, for the priests to wash their hands and feet. This is the what is called the molten sea. It's a um, basin made out of metal, made out of bronze probably, on the backs of uh, 12 bulls made out of bronze. Three towards the north, three towards the south, three towards the east, three towards the west. Uh, you see these uh, pillars out front here. They had names, Yaquin and Boaz. Um, how long was the temple standing? Well, early rabbinic sources claim that the temple stood for 410 years. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus claimed that it stood for 470 years, six months, and ten days before it was destroyed. Uh, I mentioned that the pillars, uh, Yaquin means he shall stand or may he establish, and Boaz means in strength. There's another cutaway of the temple. Now, in the tabernacle, there was one table of showbread on the north side of the room, and there was one menorah on the south side of the room, and then on the west side of the room, there was the, the altar of incense. But the temple was much larger than the tabernacle, and so there are actually ten tables of showbread. There's five on the north side, five on the south side. And there are ten lampstands, five on the north side, five on the south side. So that's what you see along the wall here, the lampstands and the tables, and over here as well. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention about those two pillars, now some diagrams show them as being out front of the temple, and some diagrams show them as being tucked into that portico, under that roof. And that's where this diagram shows them. So we're not absolutely certain about, about that. Uh, another thing that you can see is that there were two cherubim on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. But in the temple, there were also two huge winged creatures on both sides of, of the Ark of the Covenant. Here's another diagram of the temple, and once again you see those two pillars in, inside the portico rather than up front. These uh, 
structures here around on three sides of the temple. It's believed that they were used for storage. Uh, here's another diagram of the temple, and, and here this one provides us with some measurements. This uh, holy area, holy place, was 40 cubits long, and then the Holy of Holies was 20 cubits long. So the dimensions of the temple were twice those of the tabernacle. It was, it was twice as long. So in total, the, the rooms there would be uh, 60 cubits long. The tabernacle was 30 cubits long. And there's that molten sea again. And then these things here are interesting as well. I'll tell you more about those. Here's another drawing of that molten sea sitting on the backs of the, of the oxen. And I'll tell you more about that when we get to things that make you go, hmm. Um, So these little little cart, these little wheeled things here, what are they? Well, the the altar of incense looks pretty much the same as it did in the tabernacle. The bread of the presence is pretty much the same, except that there were more of them. There was only one in the tabernacle, there are ten. And of course you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. But what are these little wheeled things? Well, they're movable bronze basins. So they, in other words, they held water and they were wheeled so they could be moved around. Uh, I'll tell you more about those in the next slide, but I also wanted to mention about the lamps. Now, some scholars think that the lamps in the temple were menorahs, so they think that there were ten menorahs in the, in the temple. But other scholars think, no, they weren't really menorahs. There was, there was this bowl of oil on, on a stand like this, well, well, and, and there were seven wicks around this bowl of oil, so they, all of these wicks were lighted. So each each candle, excuse me, each lampstand had seven wicks, and there were ten of them. Now back to these carts, these movable basins. They held water and were used to wash off the animal parts that were put on the altar for the burnt offering. So that's what the purpose of those was. And they could be moved around as, as the priests were working. The dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, let's compare the two. Both the accounts, the, the account of the dedication of the tabernacle and the dedication of the temple, both accounts use the word, word assemble. Assemble the whole congregation. When the congregation was assembled, it says in Leviticus, and then in 1 Kings 8, well, we're reading about the temple. Then Solomon assembled the elders. All the peoples of Israel assembled. All the people of Israel assembled. Both Moses and Solomon blessed the people after the dedication. In both cases, it is impossible to enter the sanctuary after the, the divine presence fills it. So after the dedication of the temple, the Shekinah glory filled the temple, and it was temporarily... Impossible for the for the priest to enter into the sanctuary. 
Also, the dedication is followed by a divine revelation that is either visual or auditory. In the case of the tabernacle, it was visual. The entire congregation saw the glory of the Lord, and then fire came out and uh, burnt up the, the offering. In the case of the temple, it was auditory. God spoke to Solomon about this structure that he had built. Uh, Solomon offered a prayer at the dedication of the temple. Uh, Some things about Solomon's prayer. Solomon delivers it in a standing position, spreading his hands heavenward. Solomon uses repeated phrases, the most common of which is, hear in heaven, hear in heaven and forgive, hear in heaven and act, hear in heaven and do things that he was beseeching God to do. Now, it is worth noting that Solomon's appeal for forgiveness uh, is not an automatic, uh, routine, cheap grace type of forgiveness. It's forgiveness that's predicated upon the individual or individuals seeking God in prayer, confessing, turning from their sin, and repenting. Of Solomon's seven specific circumstances, the first four deal with events inside of Israel, the last three deal with events outside of Israel. So in this prayer, Solomon is presenting to God different scenarios, different sets of circumstances. So he talks about when when someone sins against their neighbor, he asks God to, to do this to forgive them, but of course based on their repentance. Uh, When someone, um, when Israel is defeated before an enemy, now that's talking about when Israel is defeated within their borders, within their land, when they're defeated by an enemy, he asks God to do, to do, to respond, to intervene. When heaven is shut up, when there is famine in the land, so these first four things all pertain to things in Israel. And the last three regard foreign things. When a, he says, when a foreigner comes to, from a distant land. So he wanted the temple to not only be for Israel, but he wanted it to be something that would impress upon the nations the presence of God. And of course, this is exactly what happens with the, the Queen of Sheba later on. A foreigner comes to, from a distant land to see the temple, to see Solomon. He says, when, when uh, Israel goes out to battle, he asks God to intervene in that circumstance. And here he's talking about when Israel goes to some other foreign land to, to battle. And finally, he says, when Israel sins against you and they are taken captive to some foreign land. He prays about that scenario, that situation as well. This is a a map showing the incredible international trade network that Solomon built up. So he has activity going in all directions from from down here into the the Red Sea. He's trading with Africa. He's trading down into into the Arabian Peninsula. It is thought that Sheba, where the Queen of Sheba came from, was was down here. Uh, I believe that's where where Yemen is today. So there's 
a lot of warfare going on there today. But he, he traveled up into, up into Asia, into Asia Minor, Turkey, and Greece, and Italy, and Sardinia, and North Africa, and clear over to Spain. The Bible talks a lot about Tarshish and the ships of, ships of Tarshish, and it's generally thought that that was clear over here, and, uh, tar, what later became called Tartessos in Spain. Here's another map of his, showing his trade, some of the goods. So down here from where Sheba, where the, where the queen of Sheba was from, he got gold and spices and precious stones. And we're not sure where Ophir was, but one of the ideas is it was down here in Africa. And from there he got gold and wood and precious stones. I've read uh, one scholar who thinks that Ophir was even as far away as Sri Lanka. So once you, once you travel down the Red Sea and out into the Indian Ocean, you can go, virtually go anywhere in the world. And so that scholar believes that there's evidence to indicate that Ophir was clear over in Sri Lanka. That's where, where Chitty's from. So he was getting chariots from the Egyptians. He was getting horses from up here in Asia Minor. He, his, his port on the, on the Red Sea was up here at, at Zion Geber, which is where Eilat is located today. But from that port, he could travel down the Red Sea and out in, into the Indian Ocean. Even though there was peace during Solomon's reign, he was getting some enemies towards the end of his reign. So there's Hadad. This was um, a man from Edom, and he was driven out of Edom by Solomon's father, David. So he eventually came to Egypt but he came, returned to Edom to oppose Solomon. So things are, are shaping up to become very chaotic and very warlike in, in the reigns following Solomon. Um, Rezon was, a, was an outlaw up here in Zobah, and he fled down to Damascus, and, and uh, he proclaimed himself king in Damascus. So remember, in, in Solomon's time, they were controlling this area clear up into Damascus. So there are people rising up to, to oppose Solomon. But the most important one is Jeroboam. He had worked for Solomon. He was an Israelite. He was uh, in charge of one of the corvées, C-O-R-V-E-E, -E, with a little accent mark on the last E. <laughs> what these were was um, compulsory, a, a, a compulsory workforce. In other words, people were forced to work. They had to work. There, there were groups of people that in, in the north, once again, in those northern uh, tribal areas in northern Israel, 
And the way it was set up was that you would have one month of work. You have to work for the king, for the government, for a month. And then you had two months off where you could do your thing. But one month out of every three, you were working for the king. And, of course, all of this was building up more resentment among these, these northern tribes. They had to, remember, supply the, the food and the money to make the government work. And they also had to provide the work. Now, the, the main people that, that provided the really hard labor were, were Canaanites and foreigners. So the, the Israelites that were compelled to work were mainly kind of supervising the, the work, but they still had to work. They still had to be working for, for the king, for Solomon, for one month out of every three. And Rehoboam was one of these, was one of these uh, supervisors, one of these the leaders of, the, of one of these corvées. And the prophet of God had told him that he would give ten tribes to to uh, Jeroboam. Uh, Rehob- excuse me, Jeroboam. So he he, he fled to Egypt during the reign of Solomon, but as soon as Solomon died, he headed back to Israel. There's another map of Solomon's adversaries. Hadad from Edom fled to Egypt, but he returned to Edom to oppose Solomon. Reason moved to Damascus and proclaimed himself king. Neither one of those who proved to be very much opposition for Solomon, but but uh, Jeroboam uh, is bringing trouble. So after Solomon died, the the people of the northern tribes went to Re, to Jero, to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon and asked him to lighten their burden. But Rehoboam made the mistake of listening to, the, to his young friends who told him to, to, meet, to pile it on, make it even tougher. So the people of the northern tribes decided that they no longer wanted to be tied to the dynasty of David in the tribe of Judah. Remember that Part of Israel is was uh, located east of the Jordan River in this area here. So all of this area and this area here um, broke away from Solomon. And so it's just Judah down here was stayed with the dynasty of David, Judah, and, and later on the the tribe of Benjamin. Stayed with with David's dynasty. When Rehoboam became the king of the northern tribes of Israel, he established um, two high places. One here in the southern part, Bethel, and one clear up here in the northern part of the country at Dan. So... People had their option of they could attend the pagan temple of their choice. 
Dan, excuse me, Jeroboam built these two alternate worship places because he didn't want people going back to Jerusalem to worship because he was concerned that if they did, he would lose them. So he built two golden calves for them to worship in these two locations. Rehoboam, the, the king of Judah, when, when the northern tribes broke away, he was going to send an army after them to bring them back. And God, through a prophet, told him, no, don't do this. This, this division, this split is of me. And surprisingly, Rehoboam listened, so he didn't proceed with the war. Now, the relations between the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, they went back and forth. Uh, sometimes they were very friendly towards each other. Sometimes they, hostilities broke out. There was one king named Baasha in Israel who uh, enlisted the help of Ben-Hadad of Syria, the king of Syria, to try to push Judah back, to push him further south so he could enlarge his kingdom. And that's what, what it's showing us here. In this little insert, they were trying to push the border back down to Ramah, but they were not successful in doing that. These nations, these four nations that had been kept in check all during this time, suddenly uh, started moving after Solomon died. And one of the leaders who did that was this Pharaoh Shishak. Pharaoh Shishak is one of the few pharaohs in the Old Testament that is named. Most of the time when the Old Testament talks about a pharaoh of Egypt, it just calls him Pharaoh. So there's all kinds of debate about which pharaoh that is. But even in this case of Pharaoh Shishak, there is debate about whether about who this pharaoh is, about his identity, because there isn't any pharaoh known by that name in Egypt. So most scholars think that this pharaoh Shishak that the Bible talks about is the same as the pharaoh that in Egypt is called Shoshank. That's the common view, but not everyone accepts that. Uh, the archaeologist David Roll, he believes that this pharaoh Shishak was a very famous pharaoh. It was none other than Ramesses II. He doesn't believe that Ramesses II was the pharaoh of the of the Exodus. He believes that this pharaoh uh, Ramesses was was ruling much later. He takes issue with the, with the conventional uh, timeline that that most Egyptologists lay out. But this pharaoh Shishak came up into Israel into Judah, and he captured several cities. Uh, but Rehoboam was able to buy him off. When, when he came to Jerusalem, Rehoboam was able to buy him off with, some, with lots of valuable things from, from the temple, treasury, from, from his own treasury. So he bought this pharaoh Shishak off and he went back home to Egypt. Now, another very important part of 1 Kings and 2 Kings is the story of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets of God. So, um, 
the most, the most famous thing about Elijah, of course, is his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. So that happened up here on Mount Carmel. And I assume that uh, you Amundsen's, when you were in Israel, that you stood on that, that roof of the monastery at Mount Carmel, overlooking the, the Jezreel Valley. Oh. <laughs> um, that, that's a common place for tourist groups to go. But anyway, after he had the famous confrontation with the prophets of Baal, then he, he fled south because, well, he went to Jezreel, and Queen Jezebel said that she was going to kill him. So he continued on south um, through Samaria, Mount Gerizim, that's where, where um, Shechem is located, down to Bethel, Jerusalem, Hebron, Beersheba, in the south, and on down to Horeb, or Sinai. It's known by both of those names, wherever that's located. And there's lots of disputes about that. This is a map just showing some of the activities of both Elijah and Elisha. This is Elijah's birthplace right here at Tishbe east of the Jordan River. Um, so the, the place where Elisha was from was not too far away. It was right over here, his home village. Mm -hmm. This is where, where Elijah had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal up here. Some of the other things Elijah did, he pronounced his doom on Ahab, in his family for the sins, sin against Naboth. Remember the story of Naboth's vineyard where King Ahab wanted to acquire his property. Naboth wouldn't sell. So Jezebel, in her wicked, scheming mind, decided, came up with a way to, to murder Naboth and take his property. And so Elijah prophesied the doom on, on Ahab and his dynasty because of that. And then Elijah fled down here to Horeb or Sinai. Uh, we'll talk more about next time about this dramatic ascension of Elijah into heaven, which happened here at the Jericho River. Um, some of the things that Elijah did, this is, this is where um, Naaman was cleansed from leprosy. Haman was a, a general, a foreign general, but he had heard about the greatness of Elijah, Elisha, the great miracles he performed, so he went to see Elisha, and he was kind of bummed out when Elisha told him to go wash seven times in the, in the Jordan River because the Jordan is not a very impressive river. He said, well, we have bigger, greater rivers in our country than that. But his... his his servants talked him into doing it, and he was healed. And this is where um, Elisha purifies a pot of stew. That was another miracle he performed. Uh, this is where Elisha raises Shun the Shunammite son from death. And that's interesting. Both Elijah and Elisha raised a woman's son from the death, from death, Elijah's was up here at Zarephath, 
in Phoenicia, so it wasn't even in Israel, where he raised the son of a widow from death. And then Elisha raised a woman's son from death down here at Nain, or excuse me, at Shunem. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Here's that diagram again of, of the movements of Elisha when he fled from Jezebel, clear down to Beersheba and then on to Sinai. There's another map of the activities, the movements of Elisha, here, Mount Carmel again. The, the mountains of Israel run mainly north and south, but right here they turn off to the northwest and go right out to the sea. And that's where Mount Carmel is located. It's called the Carmel Ridge, this ridge here. Once again, there's Tishbe, the, the, um, the place where uh, Elijah was born. Uh, probably quite near, somewhere quite near there is the brook Kareth. Remember, that was where, the place where Elijah was fed by the ravens. During, during the drought, where he was hiding out from Ahab. Some of the activities of Elisha. In the same way that Moses was the forerunner, and then after him came Joshua, who led the Israel into the Promised Land. And in the same way that Elijah was the forerunner, then came Elisha, who received a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. In that same way, there's a, there's a parallel with Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's the Elijah that leads to Jesus. And then Jesus actually performs a much greater work and makes it possible for us to, to have salvation. So he does a greater work. John the Baptist was the forerunner for him. So there are some parallels between Moses and Elijah, the two forerunners. And it's interesting that at the Mount of Transfiguration, these two forerunners appear with, with Jesus. But here, here are some of the parallels. Moses kills an Egyptian. Elijah kills 450 prophets of Baal. Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses. Jezebel seeks to kill Elijah. Moses flees for his life to Midian. Elijah flees for his life to Horeb or Sinai. Moses comes to a bush. Elijah comes to a broom tree. Moses and God dialogue by debate. And Elijah and God dialogue by debate. Remember the, the debate that, the, that God and Elijah have when, when uh, Elijah is at a, in a cave down at, at Mount Sinai? So there are, there are some parallels there. And then there are some parallels between Jesus and Elisha. They're the ones who actually carry out the, the final mission that was set up by their forerunner. Both their names, Jesus and Elisha, 
contain the verb save or the noun salvation. Elisha receives Elijah's spirit by the Jordan, the Jordan River. Jesus receives the spirit in his baptism by the Jordan, by the Jordan River. Unlike Elijah or John the Baptist, Elijah and John the Baptist, they lived out in the wilderness. They dressed in unusual ways. One of the people who reported to King Ahab that he had seen this person that he thought was Elijah, um, King Ahab says, what did he look like? How was he dressed? And the person tells him, and then he says, that was Elijah. <laughs> so he, he had distinctive dress, distinctive appearance, both John the Baptist and Elijah. But unlike those two, Elijah and Jesus dress just like everybody else, and they are quite at home in the midst of crowds. They don't live off in the wilderness. Elisha and Jesus can see and hear what is going on elsewhere. So remember how in the Gospel of John, when some of the disciples went to Nathanael and they told him about Jesus, and then they came to Jesus, Jesus already knew all about this, even though he wasn't there. He, he knew about this. And then in Mark chapter 11, when Jesus sends disciples to go get this donkey that he's going to ride into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. He already knows all about where the donkey is and he knows all about the, the owner of the donkey and what he's going to say, even though he's never been there. He's never contacted the person. And the same in Mark chapter 14 with, with the Passover. He sends disciples to go prepare that upper room for the Passover. He already knows all about the upper room and the owner of the upper room and that the owner of the upper room is going to allow them to use it. He, he knows all of these things even though he wasn't there. Well, Elisha does the same kind of thing. Uh, remember when Naaman, that uh, general, that officer, that foreign general that was healed of leprosy, and then Elisha's servant goes and lies to the general and, and tells him to, to, that, uh, that Elisha does want some payment for his services. Well, even though Elisha wasn't there, he knows all about this. He knows that his servant lied to, to Naaman. Um, in chapter 6, verse 12, um, Elisha knows what the king of Aram says, even in his bedroom. Even though Elisha wasn't there, he, he knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. In chapter 6, verse 32, Elisha knows that somebody was sent to kill him. Even though that nobody has told him this, he knows that this is going to happen. He knows that, this, that someone is trying to kill him. So both Elisha and Jesus can see and hear what is going on elsewhere. A corpse comes back to life after it touches Elisha's bones. And then with Jesus, many saints come back to life after Jesus' death. Remember after, after the crucifixion, the graves were opened and these people came out of the graves, came to life. So there are parallels between Jesus and Elisha. There are parallels between some of the miracles that they performed. 
uh, Elisha's cleansing of Naaman's leprosy, and Jesus' cleansing of lepers, especially the, the ten lepers. Elisha's feeding a large multitude, and Jesus' multiplication of the loaves. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, Elisha feeds a multitude of people with very little food. In fact, his servant comes to him and says, well, how are we going to feed all these people with this little bit of food? The very same thing that the disciple Andrew says to Jesus. How, how can we feed so many people with just this little bit of food? So those parallels are very interesting between Jesus and Elisha. Now, when I show you this, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because this is actually in Second Kings, but I just I really enjoy telling this story. So this is a map of northern Israel. Once again, here's, here's the Carmel Ridge, Mount Carmel, Jezreel Valley. Here's Megiddo, Har-Megiddo, Armageddon, where the, the, the armies will be gathered in, in Revelation. Nazareth is up here. But what I want to draw your attention to is this hill right here. It's called the Hill of Moreh. On the south side of that hill, in Old Testament times, there was a village called Shunem. On the north side of that hill, in New Testament times, there is a village called Nain. So I'll show you the significance of Shunem and Nain. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us get a bed, set a bed for him there. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. The woman was barren. She didn't have any children. So Elisha asked his servant what he, what he could do for this woman. Uh, and, and Elisha promised the woman that she would have a child. Then he, Elisha, said, At this season next year, you will embrace a son. The woman conceived and bore a son that season the next year, as Elisha had said to her. But then a tragic incident happened. When the child was grown, he said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, the father, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. So they went and summoned Elisha. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered, Elisha entered and shut the door behind the bolt and prayed to the Lord. And the lad opened his eyes. So he, Elisha, called to her. When she came in to him, he said, take up your son. So Elisha raised this woman at Shunem from the dead. He raised her son of the woman from the dead. Now let's turn to the New Testament. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Jesus went to a town called Nain. And he drew near to the gate of the town 
as he drew near, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, remember what I told you about these two villages. So here's, here's the, the hill of Moran. Over to your left there, you see the, the modern village of Nain on the, on the north side of that hill. There's the village of Nain again. Right there in the center of the picture. But remember I said that Nain was on the north side of the hill and just over the hill on the other side was the Old Testament village of Shunem. So Shunem, the Old Testament village, where Elisha brought a woman's son back to life, is at the same location where Jesus, in New Testament times, brought a woman's son to life. And I I like telling about this example because this, this illustrates why it's so helpful to understand the geography of the Old Testament and then to be able to relate it to the geography of the New Testament. Because otherwise you say, Nain, what's Nain? I've never heard of it. But once you see the, the big picture of how these, how these things relate, um, you can imagine that, that the people who lived in Nain had heard this story about this amazing miracle that Elisha had performed. They'd heard that a time or two, don't you suppose? But there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. And now Jesus comes along and performs a similar miracle at that same location. So it's not only significant what Jesus said and what he did, often it's significant even where he said it or where he did it. So that's why I find that story story so fascinating. Now, I told you before that during the reign of Solomon, all of the surrounding nations had been kept in check. But as we get further and further into the divided kingdom, the divided monarchy, Syria begins invading Israel periodically. This map shows up four different times when when Syria invaded invaded uh, Israel. And probably the most memorable incident is where an archer from, from Syria just randomly shoots an arrow into the air towards the Israelites and he happens to kill Ahab. It happens to hit Ahab and it happens to hit just in the right spot so it gets through his armor. And of course that's the the beginning of the end for Ahab and his dynasty. So there's some more maps of how Syria came into Israel. Uh, Jezreel Right there was, was one of the places where where Ahab had his palace. He also apparently had a palace in Samaria. 
but he had he fled after uh, after he was shot with this arrow. He, he didn't die right away, but eventually he did. And eventually, uh, his uh, wicked queen Jezebel was killed and became dog food. Now, the things that make you go, hmm, pi, pi in the Bible, the, the ratio pi. Remember that, that molten sea, that large basin made of bronze on the back of the 12 bowls? Now, he made the sea of cast metal, 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was 5 cubits, and 30 cubits in circumference. So, scoffers look at that and they say, see there, the people who wrote the Bible were stupid people. They were uninformed. They didn't understand math or science. If you remember from your high school geography, the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter is pi, which is approximately 3.14. It's an irrational number, so you can carry, on, carry it on out as, far, as many decimal places as you want. But it's approximately 3.14. It's not 3, it's 3.14. So scoffers will say that the Bible was written by stupid people. It, it couldn't possibly have been written by a divine God because he wouldn't have inspired his biblical writers to make such an ignorant comment. Well, is that really what's going on here? Let's take a look. This is First uh, Kings 7.23. If we read a little further down, it's still describing this, this molten sea. It says its thickness was a handbreadth, which is approximately four inches or so, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup. So, what we are really talking about here is two circles, an inner circle and an outer circle. We're talking about the outer diameter, and we're talking about the inner circumference. We're, we're talking about two different circles here. We're talking about the diameter of the outer one and the circumference of the inner one. So the inside circumference is 30 cubits. And assuming that a cubit is 18 inches, foot and a half, that would be 540 inches. The outside diameter is 10 cubits, which would be about 180 inches. And then there is a thickness between these two circles, if you will, of, of a handbreadth, about four inches, the thickness of the wall. So the Bible is only giving us the inside circumference, 540 inches, and the outside diameter of 180 inches. It's not giving us the inside diameter of approximately 171.97 inches or the outside circumference, 
565.2 inches. So it's giving you two of the dimensions, but it's not giving us all four dimensions. And so you can't expect the, the ratio between the inside circumference and the outside diameter to be pi, 3.14. That's not, that's not the way it works. We're talking about two different circles. Another way that you can look at this is from the side. So the outside diameter is giving us the, the, the distance from one brim to the other. But the inside circumference is, is taken from further down. So, so once again, we're talking about two different circles. No, the Bible doesn't claim or even imply that the value of pi is 3 rather than 3.14. So that's one of the things that makes you go, hmm, that's explainable. Now the other thing that's a little more complex to explain is the, the whole chronology of this period of the divided kingdom. In the divided kingdom, we have what we call synchronisms. So whenever we're introduced to a new king of Judah, his reign is given in terms of the king of the other kingdom, Israel. So it will say something like this. In the X year of the reign of so-and-so of Israel, so-and-so became king of Judah, and he reigned Y years. So you see that that formula over and over again, and vice versa. When, we have, when we're introduced to a new king of Israel, it's, his reign is given in reference to the king of Judah. In the next year of the reign of so-and-so of Judah, so-and-so became king of Israel, and he reigned Y years. So when you first see that, you think, well, this is a piece of cake. This is, this is easy. With all of this information, it really nails it down. But problems arise because along with these synchronisms, we have a length of reign notice. So at the beginning of a, of a king's reign, it will tell us that he began to reign in the reign of so-and-so of this other kingdom, and he reigned Y years. But we also have this length of reign notice, and so-and-so reigned X years, reigned a certain length of time. Well, sometimes the, the X and the Y don't agree. They're different numbers. They seem to contradict one another. Well, what's, what's going on here? We really owe a lot, a great deal, to a man named Edwin Thiel. He spent a lot of time and effort studying the, the kings of Israel and Judah. And he wrote a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. The book was first published in 1951. Another edition came out in 1965. And then finally another edition in 1983. Um, and as far as uh, length of, of reigns, uh, Edwin Thiel lived a long time. He lived from 1895 until 1986, so he lived into his 90s. But this, this work is still considered the, the definitive study of the, the 
reigns of the Hebrew kings, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. Subsequent scholars have tweaked his numbers a little bit, but, but still, for the most part, his, his understanding of how this works is, is quite solid. And he discovered some things about the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah regarding the lengths of the reigns. First, there is the issue of Hisan dating, which was the northern tribe, Israel, the northern, northern kingdom, versus Tishri dating, which was used in Judah. And what that means is Nisan is a, is a month in the Hebrew calendar in the spring. So in the north, they began their year in the spring. In the south, they began their year at the month of Tishri in the fall. So that's one reason why you have some differences. Um, perhaps the best way to, for, to, for you to think about this is if you think about uh, the calendar year versus a fiscal year. It's the same sequence of months, but you just begin your year at a different time. So like the calendar year begins on January 1st. The state of Minnesota begins their fiscal year on, on July 1st. And the federal government begins their fiscal year on October 1st. So it's the same sequence of months, but you just begin your year at a different time. So if you say which year you're in, well, that depends on whether you're talking about the calendar year or you're talking about the fiscal year. Well, there, there's these different years used by, by the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Another factor which complicates the links of the reigns is the accession year, which was used primarily in Judah, versus the non-accession year, which was used primarily in Israel. And I'll explain what is meant by accession year and non-accession year in just a minute. But I'll just talk briefly about the other one. There are also periods of co-regency. So if you have two, two men, one is, one is the ruling king, and he's quite elderly, and he's not able to carry out all of his duties by himself, he will appoint his son to be king with him. So there are periods of co-regency where both men are ruling. The old king and the new king are both kings. So that period of time, of that period of co-regency when they're both ruling, what do you do with that? Is that part of the old king's number of years in his reign or part of the new king's number of years in his reign or both? Uh, how, how do you handle that? So there are some periods of co-regency where you have two kings ruling together. And sometimes a king would just want to make sure that the son that he picked became the next king. So he would coronate the king while he, the young king while he was still alive. We, we say, see that happen with, with David and Solomon. David wants Solomon to be the next king, so he crowns him as king, proclaims him as king, before David is yet deceased. So... Um, one, the one thing I want to explain is what accession year and non-accession year means. Okay. Let's say that we have King A. And in the, the 12th year of his reign, he dies. Just, just to make it simple for you to understand, let, let's say that, that uh, he dies in May of 2019. And his son is coronated in July of, of 2019. 
So what do you do with 2019? Is that part of the old king's reign or part of the new king's reign or both or neither? Or what do you do with that? So under the accession year of reckoning, even though both kings reigned in 2019, the old king reigned for part of it and the new king reigned for part of it, you don't count the first year of the new king's reign until the next full year. So that, that first, that year when he reigned partially, part of the year, that's the accession year. That's the year during which he came to power. But that's not counted as the first year of his reign. The first year of his reign is the first full year of his reign. So that's the accession year method. The non-accession year method counts that first year when he just reigned part of the year as the first year of his reign. So that is another reason why there are discrepancies or there appear to be discrepancies between, between the, the reigns of the kings that are given, the links of the reigns. And, and to make it even more complicated, like for example, when The, um, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have these two dating systems. When the southern kingdom is looking at the northern kingdom from, from the perspective of the southern kingdom, they will date it, the king's reign according to their dating system, even though that's not the dating system that's used in the other kingdoms. So, so it becomes very complex. So those are some things that are, that are going on with with the uh, dating system. Things that, that can make you go hmm at first when you see uh, one place where a king's reign is given as this number and another place is given as a different number and you say, what's going on here? How, how, could, how could the Bible get this all mixed up? Well, that's, that's what happened. When you take all of these things into account, the, the uh, Nissan dating versus Tishri dating, the uh, accession versus non-accession, and the co-regencies, when you, when you take all of that into consideration, it, it works out. It makes sense. And, and like I say, we can be very thankful that uh, Mr. Thiel spent so much time uh, sorting that all out for us. And so let's, let's have a word of prayer, and we can, then we can go out and see if it's still snowing. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have given us your sure word that we can depend on, that we can understand, that can be defended against all assaults of non-believers, people who want to find fault with you and with your word. Sometimes, of course, they, they major in minors. They, they look intently at things that are really just minor issues, but we can give answers. We can, can rely upon your word and we can trust your word. And we thank you so much that you have wrought the dynasty into effect and preserved that dynasty throughout the centuries to bring us salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.